doctrinally moving from the adversary in the counter-terrorism world to the adversary in the cyberspace world doctrinally is no different. We have an enemy, we have an adversary, and they utilize a variety of tactics, techniques and procedures. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. I'm Steve Moore, and on today's show, I speak with Mick Jenkins, Chief Information Security Officer at Brunel University and former counterterrorism officer in the British Armed Forces. We talk about the ideological similarities between defending against terrorists versus cybercriminals, the benefits of mentorship throughout your career in security, and the re-emergence of Soviet-era espionage techniques. Building a career in security can be a challenge, even for those of us who start off early. For some, however, the job can be a natural progression from Her Majesty's Armed Forces to helping secure the 2012 Olympics and ultimately becoming a CISO. Even so, how do you channel these unique experiences into something that will withstand the diverse threats organizations today face? Mick, I can't thank you enough for agreeing to participate in the show. This might be the first time where there's really no rules around the subject or the topic. You've done so much, uh, soldier, mountaineer, author, lots of things in between. Mick, if you would, please give us a quick introduction to introduce yourself to the show, if you would. Um, well, Steve, firstly, thank you very much indeed. I'm absolutely delighted to have a, have a chat with you about uh, I guess both my career and my professional involvement these days in cybersecurity and the, the sort of wider world that I exist in as a non-executive director. So sure, today I've been doing all sorts of different things on the computer in terms of dealing with investigation, dealing with some IT directors around uh, our current strategy. I had lunch with my wife, which was fantastic. And after we finish this show, I shall be off to the nursery to collect my five-year-old daughter. So, yeah, it's a busy old day. Fantastic. Uh, several people here had a chance to meet you in London, I think at InfoSec. And each of them that met you said, you have to meet this guy. And then when they found out about this leadership podcast, them said, hey, you've got to get him on the show. Uh, so we're very happy to have you here. So you started off as a professional soldier in Her Majesty's Armed Forces at what age? Uh, how old were you when you got signed up? Pretty much 16 and a half years of age, actually, Steve. And um, it's quite fascinating. I'm sure many of the listeners today will, will look back on their lives and think, my goodness, how on earth did I end up where I am today in this particular profession? And I think that certainly is very much true for myself. I certainly never expected to, you know, be in what I would say the final years of my professional career heading into retirement in the next uh, sort of three to four years, where I didn't expect to end up as a, as a chief information security officer uh, dealing with uh, strategic cyber security, because very much my, my life began as a, as a soldier in the Royal Engineers in the British Army. Uh, and it kind of moved on from there. But you never know as you're taking that career and journey where each branch of promotion 
or new qualification will lead. So it was quite a fascinating journey to arrive here, actually. And uh, by the way, it was it was really good to meet up with you in London and, and chat about some of this. Oh, I completely agree. Thank you. The pleasure's all mine. I know you're passionate about transformation, uh, you know, especially leaving government service and becoming a CISO. Uh, I know you're helping others with this. How does one find a mentor during this process? Sure. Um, I, I think you, you and I are both uh, very keen on, I, I guess, identifying and spotting the leaders of tomorrow and investing in them. And I think it's particularly important because, as we know, over the next you know five to ten years, the the cyber uh, sort of world and the cyber industry and business are going to need the best of leaders um, to support boards and to deliver strategies that are coherent. And, you know, for me, having had such wonderful careers, uh, for me, I wanted to, I want to be able to pay some of that back to um, younger uh, ladies and men who we can perhaps identify have got the talent to get all the way to the top of the cyber tree as CISO or strategic leaders, uh, both in government and the private sector. And luckily, I'm connected with a number of uh, different organizations and people here in the UK. And one of the wonderful ones are uh, a, a small company who are taking veterans um, those people who have done, you know, kind of 22 years service in the military, uh, very loyal uh, servants, very disciplined, very capable, quick learners. And what they're doing is taking them out of the forces uh, and through the company, they're retraining them as cyber specialists, cyber analysts, information security managers. Um, and then they're placing them into... Uh, industry and it's been very important and, and key for me that I try and help uh, you know along you know people who have got that talent and ultimately the same in the military it's all about leadership thought leadership actual leadership leading by example and having good strategic foresight um, and you know acting in a way as a, as a mentor or coach and at the moment I've got two individuals who, who are much younger than me, uh, who I believe have got that talent. And it's a case of, you know, sort of earmarking them for the right career progressions uh, over, you know, the course of five or 10 years and make sure that they do progress all the way to the top of the cyber tree. I was lucky myself in that my mentor, he used to take me for lunch quite often, Steve, every two or three months and say, uh, Mick, are you in the right job here? Is there anything I can do? Tell me about this company you're working for. I really think you need to be doing this, this, and this next. Uh, and I had that for 15 years, both in the military and uh, in my ultimate careers in in, in Sibby Street. Um, so I think mentorship and identifying good talent, both uh, veteran and in you know the civil industry, is something that I think we owe it uh, for the future, really. And uh, it's something I particularly enjoy doing. No question, man, it comes through. I can tell it's absolutely a passion. Would it be all right if we put uh, a link in the show notes so people could get involved with that organization? Yes, absolutely. That'd be fine, Steve. Maybe next time I'm over in London, we can go get a pint and uh, I can meet some of your mentees if that's all right. I'd be delighted to show you around London.
Fabulous, Steve. Thank you. So back to your time in service, what are the kinds of things that you think are good to pick up along the way so you can then transition into a new opportunity like what you've done? I mean, that's a, that's a fascinating question in its own right. I mean, the, the way that I look back on my career was one of always striving to achieve excellence, uh, to be honest, in whatever I was asked to do or to serve in Her Majesty's service. And I think many of us in, in the professional armed forces, you know, do strive for sheer excellence. And if you've got that kind of psyche to achieve excellence, then you will go above and beyond to learn from people, to do courses. Uh, in my case, a lot of it was about learning about the adversary. So when I entered the days of being a counter-terrorist um, explosive ordnance disposal officer, particularly involved in high research, I wanted to beat the terrorists. So I needed to be at the top of my game. And therefore, I took every opportunity to talk to some of the more experienced ground operators who had served in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. I looked to my mentors as well. It's always a fabulous thing for, for anybody going through multiple careers to, to have a mentor and a coach, if you like. And my particular mentor is a wonderful chap called John Almonds. He's in his late 70s now, and he is the guy I aspire to be. And certainly I hope to have achieved everything he did throughout his military and civilian careers and actually keep doing what he's doing, which is incredible, actually, because he's still a very, very fit man. And I think that ethos of fitness, fitness in body, fitness in mind, kind of exists all the way through your military career into retirement and beyond. And it certainly helps when you're dealing with high stress high pressure situations, you know. So you've said a lot there. We've talked about it in earlier shows, but one thing I want to go back to immediately, if you could, is you wanted to understand uh, the adversary. Uh, that plays a lot into not only the manufacture and, and detection and eradication of, in this case, ordnance, but in this case, uh, an IED, but also on the cyber front. Could you talk a little bit about what that job really is and what it is you were specifically doing? And I think um, we, we probably chatted a little bit about this, Steve, when you were in London, because the transformation from my world as a, what effectively I finished as a counter-terrorist intelligence officer within defense, the British Defense Intelligence. And I made a transformation into civilian streets where... I was working on information security, initially working with data centers, high, ultra high security data centers. Then I made a transition through into the Olympics and I was on the, I was the head of, or the lead security practitioner or strategist, if you like, for London 2012 with a particular remit for London and the, the Olympic Park and Athletes Village. And then I kind of transformed again into the university world. And, and throughout that transformation, I guess the, the point I wanted to make is doctrinally moving from the adversary in the counterterrorism world to the adversary in the cyberspace world, doctrinally is no different. We have an enemy, we have an adversary, and they utilize a variety of tactics, techniques, and procedures 
that you as the defender, if you like, need to really get into the psyche of how those TTPs will damage your organization or a nation or its critical infrastructure. So actually, it was very easy for me to make that transition, but I had to really learn about the technical elements of how the attacker exploited vulnerabilities or how the attacker got target assets, or indeed how the attacker laid particular technology command and control sort of functions within networks to be able to conduct an attack later on and conduct lateral movement and, and across sectors. So I think it's all very much, for me, it was, it was all about, again, trying to achieve excellence through understanding and knowing the adversary. And actually, if you know the adversary and you can predict, predict the, the threat horizon over the next couple of years, you can begin to build your own defenses and threat hunting elements to protect the organization, the critical infrastructure or the nation. It sounds like you just put forth the groundwork for a very interesting keynote presentation about the parallels uh, and elements between the two. Understanding harm, motive, technique. What's one thing for the non-intel, non-military, you know, people that didn't have your background, what's one thing that they miss most from your perspective? You know, it's, it's, it's an incredibly interesting world we live in, Steve, at the moment. I think you're familiar that uh, I, I enjoy a particular elements of what I would call predicting what will be coming over the next two to five years in particular. And generally, I keep a very close eye on the geopolitical situation. I don't think for any of us that have come through our careers, either in military intelligence or in the civilian sectors, protecting critical infrastructure, I don't think we've ever seen a more volatile period of time across the globe. And that's volatility leads to unpredictability and you never really know what may come next but you can predict to an extent because if you kind of go out of your way to learn about for example the state-sponsored capabilities that exist nowadays and we certainly know and we've seen and we're witnessing now across multiple sectors the state-sponsored threats you can begin to see how the adversarial world is going to really rapidly change over the next two to five years. And I think, therefore, the defenders, those of us who are trying to, if you like, protect the shores, and there's a question, where, where do the shores expand and finish? You know, I think we're going to see quite an increase in threat, and I think that could manifest itself in all manner of different impacts across sectors, across business, and across nations. How could I quantify that? Well, I think it's back to the geopolitics. What we're seeing at the moment, of course, and many of the listeners will be aware, is that we're now seeing nation states using proxies to conduct cyber attacks. And when I talk about proxies, what I mean there is that it's that plausible deniability that it wasn't us as a nation state that took down that particular infrastructure or, or started that particular attack. The proxies could be elements of organized crime, serious organized crime, and we're seeing much more of that nexus between serious organized crime and nation state threats. So I think we're in for a couple of 
the next two to five years for me in particular, I think are going to be very volatile, very unpredictable. And I think it's very important that the risk is well understood, particularly at the board level, because business risks here could be quite huge. You have a notion of a proxy, uh, other people being involved, which ultimately can cloud attribution, uh, which many people, at least on the private side, seem to become obsessed with because it's frankly, pretty interesting. Um, In conjunction with that, we have a possibility leading into a physical conflict. So a real attack, real soldiers, tanks, utilizing a cyber attack as a lever. Do you see this becoming more common? Uh, Do you see changes there? I mean, it's fascinating days as we we talk today, I think, Steve. I mean, we're seeing a a classic example of U.S.-Iranian tensions that we we all kind of knew would escalate from incidents in the Straits of Hormuz. Now, of course, those incidents in, in that narrow channel are very much linked to a much wider, higher strategic aim of both nations. And it's often been mentioned across, you know, many of the listeners today will understand that many people in the in the cyber world, understand that a small spark could escalate rapidly into all manner of different hybrid warfare attacks. And that could range from full-scale cyber attacks on critical infrastructure right the way through to escalation into military conflict. And of course, we're seeing that live right now. We've seen some of these incidents and many of the, the parties involved would have war games elements of this to see what the next move might be. And I think that elements of war gaming and uh, in our world, of course, in cybersecurity, we prepare and we train and we conduct incident management exercises for such eventualities. And at the same time, we look at the gaps. So through the exercising and the understanding of what might, may come, You look at the gaps that we have in both capability, training, and instant response. So I think, for me, it's just fascinating because this is uh, one of the topical themes of my second novel, which was published last week. And it really does focus in on how the U.S.-Iranian tensions could escalate beyond all the levels of normality, if you like. And I think that's quite a worrying element that we've yet to see how it will play out over the coming months. Let's spend a second on that. So you've just released your second book. I had to look this up. Compromat Kill, which is the title. Tell us, what does that mean for the uninitiated? And uh, maybe lay the groundwork uh, for the book itself. Yes, and I, and I, I actually chose the title some 18 months ago. And then from the title, I wrote the story. but. What was, I think you'll find interesting, and I think most of the American community will, will find interesting, is actually the word compromat has come from nowhere since 2016. It's all of a sudden, it's been immersed into American almost folklore with the, the news outlets talking about the compromat linked to some of the elections for the US president. And of course, it's a Russian term. And the Russians for many decades, uh, for a long, long time, have always used 
the tactic of using compromising material against ministers, against soldiers, against anybody in the, in the community that they could use to their advantage by having compromising material. And effectively, it's blackmail material. And the Russians have been the masters of this for decades and decades. And now we've seen the terminology come through because of the linkages and the allegations that have been put across with the linkage of Russia into the current US administration. And the term compromise has been used quite widely, I think, in, in the American uh, media, but less so over here in Britain, actually. So again, I think um, for me, when I wrote the novel, it, again, it gives a little bit of insights for readers about how this tactic is, is applied in the intelligence community, in the world of hybrid warfare, dodgy dossiers that we've seen on both sides of the Atlantic. And really, I wanted to immerse the readers in uh, what is effectively a spy thriller, linking the geopolitical situation with ground operators doing the work to collect intelligence. And there is an element of cyber sort of technology and cyber attacks in the novel, but please don't pick me up on it, Steve. The, the, the idea is it's very much a story. Yeah, I, I think that's the best way to tell a story. Uh, maybe not get bogged down in the deeper technical bits, just lay it out as a story. Uh, a bit of a sidebar. Why are Russians so good at this, seemingly? Why do you think that they lever this more than other countries? And again, I think it's a very interesting question because each of the, the big nations have got these capabilities, Steve. Um, they have psychological warfare capabilities. They do utilize influence operations. We've seen a lot in the press about disinformation and fake news. Um, so it's not just the Russians. And yes, they are very capable and very good at this element of uh, uh, should we say, nefarious activity, but it's used to create an effect. Uh, and I think it's certainly worth saying that um, the Americans, the British, the French have all got these kind of capabilities, and it's all part of the, the hybrid warfare domains these days. But influence operations has been with the Russians uh, very much because of uh, their their you know, the, the fallout from the Second World War, the formation of the Soviet Union, um, influence operations, compromise as a, as a tactic, technique and a procedure. They have doctrinally looked at this, you know, for, for decades. And there are some well-known scholars and military generals who have written stories. Uh, they've, they've been on TV. And so it gives a bit of an insight into the Russian psyche. And a good story that uh, one of my previous mentors always said to me is, Mick, never try to get into the Russian mind because you will not ever achieve it. Um, if you're a Western intelligence officer, you might try to understand the Russian psyche. But believe you me, unless you're Russian, you will never actually get in there. Uh, and that tells the story in its own right. And there's a different psyche with the Russian approach to geopolitics as there is to the Americans. Um, so I think it's quite a fascinating dimension. And what has interested me is to see 
over the years, the allocation of cyber as part of hybrid warfare now take, you know, a, an immensely front stage seat, if you like, within the US fraternity, because it's become an official domain, of course, uh, an official fighting domain, if you like, as well as land, air, sea, space, uh, and the other. So I think the Americans, uh, certainly they have all, all of these capabilities and they're, you know, what we're seeing at the moment are all these tensions globally between the Russians and America, China uh, and America, uh, and of course, Iran and America at the moment. So there seems to be a lot of activity that, you know, we could see, and a lot of the time we'll never actually witness some of the hybrid warfare going on anyway, but these axes now exist uh, across the globe, particularly post-Syria as well. So the idea of compromising material, uh, kind of a uh, maybe a related item uh, that I was familiar with a couple of years ago. So there were medical clinics that were attacked. Interestingly, though, uh, credentials were stolen and sold in marketplaces. Uh, the idea was then to purchase the credential, get into this environment, harvest the medical information, and sell it. The problem was is no one wanted that information. So then the adversary, interestingly, turned to a form of extortion. So they went and looked into the executive's mailboxes and uh, their personal information and began to extort that. So a little bit of a minor league version of what we're discussing here, but, but, but it can't happen. That's a very good example, Steve. And in a way, it, it leads us to an understanding that data is everybody's lifeblood. It's, uh, it's a currency now. And what we've, we've seen you know, over the last couple of years, the extent to which people, and particularly all serious organized crime, will go to to harvest personal data and when we take that and elevate it just slightly higher into nation state level we can begin to get an understanding that they are harvesting data because that data can bring effects for them if there is an aggregation of data that they can use to bring a particular effect and what's always interesting for us of course is that we we very rarely see it but there are effectively battalions of cyber attackers doing this harvesting. And then there are behind them a whole heap of analysts deciding to to look at, well, if we've got all of this data, it's a big data lake, how can we actually use this to create the nefarious activity that we would like to? And for me, the next dimension, and we're already, I guess, beginning to see it, is the use of artificial intelligence being used by organized crime already. And what will come from that is, is again, difficulties for the defenders and business and critical infrastructure to understand, actually, what is the best way to protect our target asset, which are the ones that are of the most value. And quite often, as you say, with personal data, it can be used for a whole heap of different acts. And therefore, the aggregation of data is, is very valuable indeed. So I think the, the social aspect of this is very interesting. So platforms like Instagram and Facebook, uh, it's sometimes difficult to know the truth and what is not. And then utilizing some of the technologies and techniques that you reference makes it even more difficult. 
So bigger picture, you're accused and now there's a video, whether it's of you or not, it's really a material, it's out there. It could be completely synthetic, um, but it just looks damning. Yeah, indeed. And, and you know, this, this is classic influence operations because people and communities and nations can be influenced by what they see, read and hear. And this is why some of the campaigns at, at the state level the nation state level are very, very detailed, as you clearly understand, Steve. And actually, those campaigns will not just go on for years, they will go on for decades. Mm. And I think, you know, with social media at the moment, and some of the challenges that have happened on both sides of the Atlantic, with the selling of data, quite often for influence campaigns, we're entering a whole new world where it's really difficult for the the common person, the common man to be able to, or the common, you know, sort of practitioner to what should or he or she believe, where can they go to find the truth? And I think that re- requires great skill in our game because, of course, if we want to get ahead of the the adversary we've got to understand well what is it that's happening here where can we find that clear intelligence picture that situational awareness that will allow me to take effective actions upon that intelligence so yeah interesting days months and years ahead i think Steve. so if something shady shows up uh, of a ceo online and we don't think it's true but we have to sort of combat this uh, is there a methodology? Is there something that can be done uh, for those that have never had to do this type of work before? And I think this is about um, continual improvement. And one of the elements of continual improvement is your organization's ability to react to different levels and classifications of incidents. And certainly here within the UK, the National Cyber Security Centre has done some great work in providing exercises out of a box for example so at the at the strategic level the ncsc is seeing that they want industry they want commerce to be able to exercise the worst type of responses that they may be faced with and they're going out of their way to try and assist because quite often in in companies there isn't that experience and quite often you have to buy in that expertise to conduct red teaming purple teaming and blue team. And I think there is a big shift here within the United Kingdom to actually make sure that the board understands uh, the risks that they face and some of the serious consequences that could come for their business or critical infrastructure from what is effectively a rising threat landscape over the next two to five years. So I think you know, we've intimated and talked about, Steve, the fact that you have to exercise, exercise and exercise. And organizations who actually do that, the beauty of it is that each individual person can witness or be exposed to the roles and responsibilities of others and what they will actually be conducting during a major incident. And the example that you cited is absolutely perfect because It ranges from the the legal connotation, so you need your legal team involved, you need your board level uh, individuals uh, involved, all the way through to disaster recovery, people, IT, 
physical security, policing, and all of those entities need to come together regularly to exercise and understand who will be doing what and whose role and responsibility it is as a different incident kind of rolls out. And, and as we know, you've got the incident resolution part, which is firstly diagnosing what it is and trying to fix it. But then we have the consequence management element, which is very much a board level uh, requirement. And what we tend to do here is we run in the UK a well-known system of gold, silver and bronze. And many businesses and organizations across industry utilize that for major incidents, whether it's a terrorist incident or a major cyber attack. And I have to say, it's it stood the test of time. And, and I guess my final points on this, Steve, is it's very important to coach the executive board as to what their role and responsibilities are during a major incident and as part of consequence management. And this is why a CISO, uh, and it's the part I actually enjoy the most, is has to make a very good relationship with all members of the executive board and I guess in a way what I tend to call myself at the executive board is their critical friend so that I can advise them on how we can mitigate and counter these threats and build a strategy to protect the organization. I've never actually heard that that term before but I will absolutely reuse it for sure. The critical friend. Along those lines some have heard me say we need to avoid making uh, introductions uh, during a crisis, especially. So in the case of a crisis on the technology front, there's responders and communications people, whomever, that need to come together, but they need to do so rapidly uh, during that crisis. You know, the, the goal is, I think, that you know everyone ahead of time, uh, so you don't have to make an introduction in a crisis, namely because the lack of uh, familiarity leads to executive discomfort and typically a, a crummy team initially. Do you see this? Have you seen it? Or do you have a counterpoint? I think you're absolutely right, Steve. And I think many listeners are probably feeling exactly the same. And, you know, the benefits of exercising together and collectively are huge and always pay massive dividends because of the relationship aspect that uh, you, you cite. And I think absolutely right. It is a very simple idea that you, you mentioned, but very very potent in the sense that, good grief, we don't want to be shaking hands as we're giving the major incident. So getting everybody around the table, what I tend to do is, is pull smaller meetings throughout the year so that we do get to know over a cup of coffee, actually, well, what is your role in this particular scenario? And I think it's just building relationships, building trust, building understanding. And I do that fairly regularly across all of my domains now, particularly with the executives, because they really don't want to be on the back foot when there's a major incident. They want to be understanding of what's expected of, expected of them, in a sense, what's their role and responsibility is, and what they can actually do very quickly to limit the damage and actually get ahead of the curve for the consequence management for the business. And I think that's where coaching of executives in major instances is particularly important. And uh, as I mentioned, we use a, a gold, silver, bronze level exercising 
methodology. So I'll quite often do a tabletop just with the gold executives. And I always use the term, you know, hey, I, I am your critical friend. These are never easy. You are highly experienced in your own particular areas, but do use me as your friend to, you know, I can act as your counsel and advise you on the kind of things that, or the implications that will come from this particular attack. And isn't it fascinating when you begin any of these exercises or real life incidents, it takes such a time to find out and diagnose exactly what's happened. And that, that for an executive is a real worrying time. And certainly that we've played out in exercises to try and, you know, keep them calm and explain to them, well, we've got teams who are trying to figure out what's likely to come next. But you have to, as I call it, it's another favorite old military term, you need to hog the pain through these early hours. And we need to just make sure that we're collegiate and cohesive in, in how we as a strategic team are leading the practitioners who are doing the work on the ground. So, yeah, I, all I could say is, Steve, is, is exercise these kind of things as often as possible and get people to meet over a social as well at the end of the exercise. Always a good thing. Uh, yeah, uh, maybe even be skilled, but be friendly. Be gregarious. Go out and talk to people, meet people, and uh, press the flesh. Get to know who, who you might be working with before an incident occurs. And just tease these things out between yourselves. And of course, very difficult way you've got organizations whose key appointments change a lot. But in a, a more settled uh, business or environment, generally what I've found is because they already know each other quite well, when an incident does happen, they generally come together and operate well as a team as well. And I think teamwork is essential uh, just to, cu uh, to cut that one off. Mick, if... If somebody wants to learn more about you, uh, maybe pick up one of your books or reach out for advice, what's the best way to contact you? Oh, sure. Um, I, I mean, the best way, Steve, is just to go to, to my website. It is is the best. Openly contactable, plenty of information and some fun on there about the novels uh, and a little bit of back, background about myself and my journey. And so that's michaeljenkins.org is that right m-i-c-h-a-e-l-j-e-n-k-i-n-s.org right that's exactly right steve perfect yeah you know if you visit the site uh, i saw some wonderful look like travel photos there what i didn't realize at first is those are actually the interesting places you'll find in the books kind of gives a, a maybe a visual representation uh, for those who haven't traveled as much as you and I'd be delighted to, um, to meet new people. That's fa fabulous, yes. So I know you're a conference goer. Uh, anything upcoming? I spend a lot of time across industry. I like to see what industry are doing. And I'm currently working with our, our own cyber researchers at our university. So I'm spending a lot of time going off to conferences, looking at some of the research aspects hmm. of cyber at the moment which is fascinating. I've done a couple of sort of lunchtime talks with some of the cyber vendors, which I enjoy. Next week is my book launch in London. Uh, so we have a party. I know it's, uh, the book is, was published or publication day was two weeks ago. Well, last week, I beg your pardon. But I tend to do the, the book launch party two weeks after. So it's gained some traction and it's getting some great reviews, which I'm 
delighted about. And then I think I'm moving over to America in the autumn to the Exabee conference. Uh, and I certainly plan to spend a bit of time with other companies out there, actually, in, in the autumn. And without looking at my diary, Steve, because I really never know what I'm doing. For- I hope that in the future we can look forward to the keynote that we or that I sort of assigned to you during the show on the uh, parallels of adversaries. Also, you know, I look forward to hanging out at uh, the Exabeam Spotlight Conference where you will be speaking as well. Uh, I just want to say thank you again uh, for spending time with us today and helping us create what is yet another uh, security leadership podcast on the new CISO. And thank you, Steve. It's been delightful. Thank you. That concludes this episode of the new CISO. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more episodes, suggest a topic, or nominate a guest, please visit exabeam.com forward slash podcast.